You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Here at Tree of Life, I believe it's not only important to acknowledge the disastrous events in Jewish history, but to understand these events from a biblical perspective, which includes giving some prophetic insight. And so although it's not commanded in the Torah, the ninth of Av, which begins in about an hour and a half or so, is one of those times in the yearly cycle, along with Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, that we are sad not only because of what happened to us historically, but because of why the events occurred. This three-week period that began three weeks ago with the 17th day of Tammuz and ending tomorrow night on the close of the 9th of Av is known as Ben Hametzarim, in the midst of distress. Days of historical trouble and tragedy for our Jewish people. I don't think it's any surprise that Islamic Jihad and Hamas have On this day again, you know, as we go through the various things that have happened in Jewish history, we're just going to add this one in 2022 that's happening in Israel right now too. But our sages were smart enough to recognize that the wise mourn the the imminence of a catastrophic event before its actual occurrence. And that is what these three weeks have been about. And so turn with me tonight to the book of Lamentations, chapter 1. We begin this evening by acknowledging in the words of the prophet Jeremiah who lamented the loss of Solomon's temple as our Jewish people were being led away captive to Babylon. And we begin verse 1, chapter 1, how lonely sits the city, the prophet writes, once so full of people. She she who was once great among the nations has become like a, a widow. The princes among the provinces has become a forced laborer. Bitterly she weeps in the night, her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. Judah is gone into exile under affliction and great servitude. She dwells among the nations, she finds no resting place. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her feast, Moedim. All of her gates are desolate, her kohanim, her priests groan, her maidens grieve, she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease, for Adonai has afflicted her because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. All her splendor has departed for the daughter of Zion, from the daughter of Zion. Her princes are like stags that find no pasture. They have fled without strength before the pursuer in the days of her affliction and her wandering. Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies saw her and mocked at her destruction. Jerusalem has greatly sinned. Therefore, she has become nidah, unclean. Unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. 
Her demise was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her. Adonai, see my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched his hand over all her treasures. She even saw nations enter her sanctuary. Those you had commanded not to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they seek bread. They traded their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Adonai, and see, for I have become despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by on the road? Look and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was brought on me? That Adonai has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger? You see, we mourn tonight and we grieve because we realize we had gone into exile. Why? Because of our sins. Because of our willful disobedience. We had sinned against Adonai and our unrighteousness has overthrown us. And so the ninth day of the month of Av, beginning tonight, has traditionally been observed with rabbinical practices and mourning rites, including not shaving, bathing, getting a haircut, sexual intercourse, wearing new clothes, putting on leather shoes, fasting, no music or laughter is allowed, instituted again hundreds of years after the second temple was destroyed. Our Jewish people, beginning tonight and all through the night into the day tomorrow, will sit on the floors of their synagogues and read the book of Lamentations by the light of candles. But even as we remember that historical tragedy tonight, we realize that God has a greater purpose and that ultimately his prophetic plan is going to be accomplished. He wants us to know that there is an end to the tragedy of the Jewish people. In fact, he prophesied it through Isaiah in chapter 40 where the prophet writes, Comfort ye, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that your warfare has ended. We say that tonight to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv, to Beersheba, to Tzvat, to Gaza, that her iniquity has been removed, for she has received from Adonai's hands double for all her sins. Nachamu, nachamu ami, comfort ye my people. And so it's become a symbol this day of all the misfortunes and persecutions of our people, for the loss of national independence, for the sufferings that we've experienced in exile. And some of the events that we are reminded of are well attested to historically, but others are just Talmudic opinions stated as fact. Number one, according to the Talmud, the Mishnah, Tractate Ta'anit 4.6, this is the day in which the ten Israelite spies came back and gave their evil report to Joshua, which discouraged our people from entering the promised land. Number two, according to the Mishnah and Josephus, the first temple built by Solomon around 960 or so BCE was destroyed on this day by Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful ruler of the Babylonian Empire, because of Israel's, again, sinful idolatry and injustice toward the vulnerable in their society. Number three, again, according to Josephus and the Mishnah, the, destructive, the destruction of the second temple built by the Judean leader Zerubbabel, later reconstructed by the Judean king Herod the Great, was destroyed by the Roman 10th legion under Titus in 70 CE. On the 10th day of Av, according to Josephus in his Wars book, but the Talmud gives the date as the 9th of Av, which became the accepted day. In any event, both temple destructions, Temple 1 and 2, resulted in the murder of hundreds of thousands of Jewish people and their survivors were carted off into exile 
to other lands. Number four, in 1290 CE on this day, King Edward I signed an edict expelling our people from England. This was the first time that a nation officially undertook to expel all of its Jewish population. Number five, fast forward another couple of centuries, 1492 on this day, 150,000 Jewish people had to be out of Spain as Ferdinand and Isabella had signed the decree for their expulsion three months earlier. The decree went forth, convert to Christianity or leave. This was an uprooting of one of the most successful Jewish communities ever to exist. Number six, the very first time which we were forced as a people into a ghetto occurred on this day in 1555 when the Jewish people of Rome were forced into walled in districts near the Tiber River. And finally, the order went forth to carry out the Holocaust in 1941 on this day given to Reinhard Heydrich. One year later on this day, it became official Nazi policy to annihilate the Jewish population in Europe. I want to read you some quotes from this book I picked up this week entitled, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. The Days of Awe as a Journey of Transformation. And I'll be reading portions of it over the next couple of months with you. Rabbi Liu, as the author writes, Tisha B'Av always coincides with the beginning of our reading from the book of, Deuteron book of Deuteronomy, which tonight we begin. The first story it tells is the story of a calamity when the children of Israel first arrived at the boundary of the promised land. God commanded them to scout out the land and then go up and take it. But the scouts came back full of fear. They conveyed their fear to the people, and the people refused to go up and take the land. This refusal became the source of a considerable estrangement between God and Israel. God brought a terrible plague on the Israelites, and it took 40 years of wandering in the desert before they would have another opportunity to enter the promised land. Now, as the book of Deuteronomy opens, and the children of Israel again stand on the brink of opportunity, Moses retells them that story. Moses begins with a highly subjective retelling of the incident of the scouts we read about in the book of Numbers. Why does he begin by repeating this material? Because that moment has clearly repeated itself. Now they're being given a second chance. Forty years before, they stood on exactly the same spot, facing exactly the same situation. And now it is time to see if they have learned anything, if they can move past this experience and get on with their lives. Or if they failed to learn, will the same calamity continue to replicate itself until they do? There are two ways of looking at the way our tradition has collapsed history on this ninth of Av. We can regard it and the weeks surrounding it as a cursed time. Indeed, there is something of this idea in the prohibition of weddings during this period. Or we can regard the ninth of Av as a time when we are reminded that catastrophes will keep reoccurring in our lives until we get things right, until we learn what we need to learn from them. Tisha B'Av is the moment of turning, the moment when we turn away from denial and begin to face exile and alienation as they manifest themselves in our own lives, in our alienation and estrangement from God, in our alienation from ourselves and from others. A second element that Moses' story and the tradition of Tisha B'Av have in common, and that is the strange tendency of Moses in the first case and the rabbis of the Talmud in the second case to blame the people themselves for what happened. In Deuteronomy, Moses shifts the blame from the 
exaggerated and ultimately dishonest story the spies told to the murmuring of the people who heard the report. The people are no longer innocents. Misled into disobedience, Moses subtly alters the narrative in this retelling to place the burden of guilt on them and not their princes. We see precisely the same kind of thing in the Tishabaab story. Why was the temple destroyed? The rabbis of the Talmud asked. Because of Sinat Chinam. Sinat Chinam. Gratuitous hatred. Because the Jewish people had, fa- had fallen into factional bickering. I was encouraged this week, the UMJC, which is another large umbrella organization of Messianic Jews alongside the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America here in America, uh, had their elections at their conference that is still going on. And Rabbi Barney Kasdan up here in Claremont was, was elected their president. So now we've got president of the two largest Messianic organizations here in San Diego with a good relationship. That's a good thing. Where was I at? Sinachinan, yes. So what were the rabbis of the Talmud talking about when they said that the temple was destroyed by gratuitous hatred? What was Moses talking about? Why did they blame the people for what had happened when the objective evidence of history clearly seeks to, seems to exonerate them? Spiritually, we are called to responsibility to ask, what am I doing to make this recur again and again? And that is precisely where Moses and the rabbis are trying to point the people to their own experience, which is the only place where they are empowered to act. What is the recurring disaster in our life? What is it that we keep getting wrong? What is it that we persistently refuse to look at, fail to see? Tisha B'Av is the day on which we are reminded of the calamity that keeps repeating itself in the life of our people. And against all reason, against the overwhelming evidence of history, Moses and the rabbis insist that we are not powerless in the face of that calamity. Moses and the rabbis insist that we take responsibility for what is happening to us. Moses and the rabbis insist that we acknowledge our complicity in the things that keep happening to us over and over again. I think I'm going to stop there in this book. Go with me back to Lamentations for a minute. Chapter 3. You see, if our Jewish people had experienced nothing but calamity, nothing but on this day that I've already talked about, and there's been many more even in the last century we could have talked about, the, the bombing of the Buenos Aires synagogue on Tishavav, the Gush Katif situation in 2005 in Israel, a lot of things. But it would be a very sad picture indeed if I would just leave it at that. But despair is not the typical view of Jewish history. There's a hope in this picture because... Although God's covenant was severely broken by our people, how many of you know the covenant is still in force? It is safe and sound. It's not going to be cast aside. And so Jeremiah writes in verse 21, This I recall to my heart, therefore I have hope. Because of the mercies of Adonai, we will not be consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Adonai is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Now, interestingly enough, there is a verse hidden in the prophets that states that this day of fasting, the fast of the fifth month, we're in the fifth month, Zechariah 8.19 says, quote, 
this day of fasting, quote, will become times of joy, gladness, and a cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Now, I believe that passage can come about fulfilled. It can be fulfilled in a number of ways. Number one, it can come about with a new temple rebuilt. That, of course, was restored with the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, especially with the acquisition of the Temple Mount in 1967. When will the temple be rebuilt? Well, we know it will be rebuilt prior to the second coming of the Messiah, and even more specifically prior to the last three and a half years of the tribulation before the second coming. We see during this time that sacrifices will already be instituted, and the anti-Messiah will set himself up in the temple. Listen, the article is already made up. Temple Mount Institute, if you visited Israel, it's already ready to rock and roll. Where will it be rebuilt? Of course, in Zion. We know its function. It's the Messiah's seat of his rule and his power. There's a story in the rabbinic documents of Rabbi Akiba, who was walking around the ruins of the second temple and with a group of his disciples, his students, and his students began to mourn the destruction of the temple. But Rabbi Akiba began to laugh and startled his disciples asked him why he was laughing when they were mourning. And Rabbi Akiba replied, quote, because if the prophecies of its destruction have come to pass, we are certain to see the prophecies of its restoration fulfilled. Isaiah 2, Zechariah 6. Well, it can also come about, I believe, not only with a rebuilt temple, but because Yeshua referred to a change in the temple and related it to his body. Go with me in the New Covenant to John, Yochanan, chapter 2. Verse 9, uh, 19. Destroy this temple, Yeshua answered them, and in three days I will raise it up. The Judean leaders then said to him, 46 years this temple was being built, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. So since the days of Yeshua, and coupled with the second temple's destruction in 70 CE, the temple has existed in an expressed new form. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will house myself in them, and I will walk among you. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Shaul says, Paul, that as believers in Yeshua, as we are filled with the Lord's Ruach, His Spirit, we have this new temple residing within us. And this new holy temple is described in more detail in terms of a foundation, in terms of a cornerstone. Quote, you have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself, in union with him, the whole building is held together, and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual dwelling place for God. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. You see, the fact, my friends, that we have the holy temple dwelling inside of us, with God dwelling in us by his Ruach, seems to make it a little puzzling for us as a Messianic Jewish community to wholeheartedly mourn tonight a destroyed physical temple. 
the physical temple concept minimizes the temple from within us, requiring us to go to a physical place where Adonai can be found. Things have simply changed. And traditional Jewry didn't get the memo about the change. We no longer mourn. Because one day we will see the heavenly temple. Of which the physical temple by the way. Was only a replica of. You see the heavenly temple. Consists solely of two things. The Lord. And the Lamb. Pretty simple temple. Look at Revelation chapter 21 with me. Verse 22, I saw no temple in her, for its temple is Adonai, Elohei Tzavaoth, Lord of hosts, and the Lamb. Its gates shall never be shut by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring it into it the glory and honor of the nations. And nothing unholy shall ever enter it, nor anyone doing what is detestable or false, but only those written in the book of of life. As we move forward into the last of last days, my friends, a new day of mourning is going to sweep the repentant nation, the repentant nation of Israel, and they will accept him as the lamb. They will accept him as their resurrected Messiah. When that day comes, the prophets tell us, I will seek to destroy all nations attacking Jerusalem. Oh, I'm telling you tonight, you don't want to be Islamic Jihad tonight based on this prophecy. I will pour out on the house of David and on those living in Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer, and they will look to me whom they pierce. So maybe the Lord's allowing more Jewish people to get saved because of this intense warfare happening. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. They will be in bitterness on his behalf, like the bitterness for a firstborn son. As a result, then, my friends, their mourning will turn to joy. The temple will already be built for Messiah's glory. And so the fasts every ninth of Av at Tisha B'Av will be forgotten as Israel joins in the great messianic banquet of believers with the Lord in his millennial kingdom. So I want to close with prayer, and then I want to move to the final section tonight. Lord God, Adonai Elohim, with deep sorrow tonight, we do remember on this night the destruction of your city, Jerusalem, the destruction, O oh God, of your sanctuary twice. And Father, since that terrible calamity, your people have been exiles. They've been hated. We've been oppressed. We've been cursed. Until in your mercy, until according to your promises, the land, Eretz Yisrael, and your holy city, Yerushalayim, have been restored. Oh God, we pray that the day may not be far off when you shall make Jerusalem a crown of glory in your hand. And your people, Israel, shall be holy unto you, O God. Your son, Yeshua, will reign and your temple shall be built anew. Bimhera biamenu, speedily and in our day, we beseech you, O God, that all the earth may see your truth and your righteousness. Amen. Amen. We want to continue tonight in our study in the book of Psalms, summertime in the Psalms, summer in the Psalms. On one level, the Psalm we want to look at tonight, Psalm 22 refers to some event in the life of David. 
probably when he's being pursued by Saul. But there's no situation recorded in the Word of God where David went through the trials to the degree which this psalm describes. David's going beyond himself writing this psalm. He's applying things prophetically beyond himself to the Messiah. And so Psalm 22 describes a death by crucifixion hundreds of years before that mode of execution was even known. And so the details of the psalm were fulfilled by the son of David, Yeshua the Messiah, about a thousand years after they were written. My friends, when I read this psalm, I don't know about you, when I read it, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. If you've ever wondered what Yeshua actually said in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he wrestled with bearing our sins, you see that Gospels only give us a brief synopsis of that. We probably have it right here in Psalm 22. We see here something of what our salvation cost the Messiah. And the only proper response as we read this psalm, maybe once a year, every year in our Bible reading time, is to bow low in worship and to submit ourselves afresh to do the will of Him who loved us and who gave Himself for us. I see this psalm broken up into two major themes. If you're taking some notes, theme number one, that the Messiah suffered on the tree of sacrifice for our salvation. Now, take a look with me. If you have a hard copy Bible, look through the psalm. You're going to see it consists actually of three cycles. As I opened this series a couple of weeks ago, I hope you got an understanding that the psalms we can mine them for the depth of their literary amazement. It's amazing, really. But the first section of the psalm consists of three cycles of complaints and confidence. We find the first cycle in verses 2 and 3 of complaint to God. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, confidence in God. Verses 7, 8, and 9, we see the complaint. Verses 10, 11, 12, we see the confidence and the petition. And finally, in verses 13 to 19, we see the complaint. And then in verses 20 through 22, confidence again and petition. So by looking at the complaint sections, we can see with some prophetic clarity something of the Messiah's sufferings on the tree of sacrifice. For the music director on the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, my God, my God, verse 2, why have you forsaken me. You see, when Yeshua was sacrificed, crucified, darkness, you remember, fell on the land, right? From about noon to 3 p.m., remember? When Yeshua cried out that haunting words we find here in verse 2, fulfilled in Matthew 27, verse 46, where he says it. And so here we enter into one of the most unfathomable mystery of the gospel, No one can really know what was involved in Adonai's forsaking Yeshua during those three hours of darkness. We know Yeshua bore Adonai's curse upon the world's sin. And that somehow Adonai in his holiness was forced somehow, I don't fully understand it, was forced to turn his back upon his son while he bore that sin. 
And so while the physical agony was horrific, was terrible, the spiritual agony was infinitesimally worse. His prayers were not answered. Look at verse 3. Oh my God, I cried out by day to you, but you did not answer. By night, but there was no rest for me. Yeshua cries out for deliverance from death. That is, if possible, that this cup should pass from him. How awful it must have been, my friends, for him to have unbroken fellowship with the Heavenly Father. To cry out to him, only to have him not answer him. He was despised and mocked. Look with me, verse 7. Am I a worm and not a man? Am I a scorn of men despised by people? All who see me mock me. They curl their lips, shaking their heads. Rely on Adonai. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him since he delights in him. Yeshua called himself a worm and not a man. A worm. What's a worm? It's, a worm is an object of scorn and weakness. These verses describe the exact actions and the exact words by Yeshua used by his enemies when he was on that tree of sacrifice, the Gospels record. He was overpowered by ferocious men. Nowhere in the Bible did David ever go through this. He's going beyond his experience. Look at verse 13 for a moment. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircled me. They opened wide their mouths against me like a tearing, roaring lion. Yeshua's enemies are likened here to ferocious animals, bulls, lions, and dogs. He went through the physical and emotional agony of crucifixion. Verse 15, here it is. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within my innards. My strength is dried up like a clay pot. My tongue clings to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare. They gape at me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It was a brutal, it was a torturous, it was a humiliating means of execution. Nachon? Poured out like water. What does that mean? It points to the excessive perspiration caused by Yeshua's suffering. His bones are disjointed, points to the feeling of being stretched out by the arms as he hung there on the tree of sacrifice. The Bible says here his heart was like wax, melting, points to the heart struggling to supply necessary blood to the extremities. Strength is dried up like a clay pot, my tongue clings to my jaws. Points to weakness as Yeshua's life is ebbing out of him. Extreme thirst as his body's becoming dehydrated. Pierced hands and feet points to Messiah being pierced. I'm going to dive deeper into this in a little bit. They stare points to a very public execution. They divided my clothes among them, cast lots from my garment. That is a specific prophecy of the activity of the soldiers around the execution stake of Yeshua. David did not go through anything like this. It's pointing beyond David. It's a prophetic psalm. 
Now, by looking at the confidence sections of this, we looked at the complaints, look at the confidence sections of the psalm. These show the Messiah's response to the Father. Did he malign the Father? Did he shake his fist in Adonai's face for ordaining this awful, horrific suffering? No. In fact, in this psalm, he affirms the the holiness of Adonai, and he uses it as the basis for his plea. He recalls God's faithfulness with others in the past and in his own past experience, and he calls out in faith to God for deliverance. That is the template for our prayer life. So verses 1 to 22 of this psalm show us how the Messiah Yeshua suffered on the tree of sacrifice for our salvation. But praise God, the psalm doesn't end in a spirit of defeat of the crucifixion. It goes on to the victory of the resurrection and the glories which follow. Point number two of two tonight is the glories and the results of Messiah's resurrection require proclaiming God's great salvation to all peoples. Now, the psalm does not say here in black and white that the Messiah Yeshua arose. But several items indicate to us that the resurrection took place between verses 22 and 23. In verse 23, first, the Messiah says, look at this. I will declare your name to my brothers. Yeshua never called his disciples his brothers before the resurrection. (laughs) But immediately after the resurrection, Yeshua told Miriam from Magdala, quote, go to my achim, go to my brothers and tell them I am going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Secondly, the outcome described in this set of verses are things that resulted from the Messiah Yeshua's resurrection. There's an amazing parallelism in the book of Psalms and in each one of these Psalms that I'm bringing out for you in this study. Let's read verse 23 for a moment. I will declare your name to my brothers. What is the result of Messiah Yeshua's resurrection? Fellowship. We are now his brothers. I will praise you amid the congregation. You who fear Adonai, praise him. What's another result of the Messiah Yeshua's resurrection? Praise. You see, if the Messiah Yeshua only suffered and died, there's no room for praise. We'd still be in our sins, right? But he's risen. We can praise him. Look with me at verse 25. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the lowly one, Nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. There is a testimony which is the result of the resurrection. God did not here abandon his holy one to the grave. He listened to his cry and he raised him from the dead. From you, verse 26, is my praise in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear him. Let the poor eat. And be satisfied. Let them who seek after him praise Adonai. May your hearts live forever. What's another result of the resurrection of Messiah here in this psalm? A thank offering. These verses describe a Jewish thank offering. We have a feast of thanksgiving. 
What is that today? Shulchan Adonai, the Lord's table, where we gather to offer thanks and praise for Adonai's gift in the Messiah and the deliverance that we have from our sins through his death and his resurrection. We most often celebrate that here during the festival of Passover and unleavened bread and at other times. Look at verse 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Adonai. Verse 31. His posterity will serve him, telling the next generation about my Lord. They will declare, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. Because he has done it. What do we see here as a result of the Messiah's resurrection from these verses? This didn't happen in David's time. He's looking forward prophetically. We see here worldwide evangelism. And finally, look back at verse 28 for a moment. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For the kingdom belongs to Adonai and he rules over the nations. Finally, we see the results of the Messiah's resurrection is his kingdom rule. Now, this part's not yet been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled soon, my friends. He's going to return bodily to crush all opposition and to rule the nations with a rod of iron in his millennial kingdom. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, there's one verse which has caused a lot of mishigas among our Jewish people for a couple thousand years. I want to wade into that mishigas for a moment. Go back with me, verse 17. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now the TLV, the Tree of Life version, which we're reading from tonight, in most Christian translations... Take the Septuagint reading, rendering rather, and, and I know this is a little difficult. I probably should have had a board up here, but it's okay at this point. They take the Septuagint rendering, karu, it's a verb, karu, translated pierced. And you'll find that in most Christian translations and in the TLV too. But the Jewish Publication Society, the traditional translation of our Jewish people, renders the Masoretic text in this verse Ka'ari, a noun form, translated like a lion. Why are there differences in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts? Well, number one, a scribe changed his text during the copying process. And toward that end, there are two kinds of scribal changes, my friends. There's accidental, and then there's intentional. Accidental would be like skipping a word or a line or reversing letters while copying a text, as a scribe would do. Intentional is when a scribe thought there was a mistake in his or her copy of the text. Intentional does not mean diabolical in terms of his attitude as a scribe, okay? It means when he thinks that there's a mistake in his copy of the text. So what's the textual evidence? Well, the ancient manuscripts are not clear. All the ancient versions, all the ancient translations, whether both Jewish and Christian translations, translated the word in question as a verb with a vav at the end of the word karu. Not as a noun with a yud at the end of the word kaari, with the exception of the Aramaic translation. 
The Septuagint says, quote, they dug out or they bore holes in my hands and my feet. Now we know, therefore, that the Hebrew text that the scribe worked from said karu, kaf, resh, vav. Or ka'aru, there's no such word in Hebrew, but it could have been ka'aru, kaf, aleph, resh, vav. We know that Christians did not corrupt the Septuagint because the Masoretic manuscripts a thousand years later in ancient Jewish sources show there was a real question among Jewish scribes beyond the first century regarding the original meaning of verse 17, the second half of verse 17. Thus, there was no Christian tampering with the text. That's the Jewish community's accusation. Well, the Christians tampered with it. The Christians raped the text, Rabbi Joel. No, they didn't. They raped the text to imply and insert Yeshua in there. No, they didn't. But there's problems with both readings. Masoretic text reading lacks a verb. Dogs surround me. A pack of evil ones close in on me. Like lions, my hands and feet. There's no verb there. And so they insert they maul in the Masoretic text. The Septuagint reading reflects a use of the verb, kara, again, kafresh, hey. That's very unusual. Normally for digging pits and mines, not for piercing like with swords or with nails. So the word, the verb kara, it's a very unusual word. So which reading is the correct one? Okay, how do we choose which text is the original text? Principle number one, choose the shortest text. Why? Because scribes add. They don't take away in order to clarify something. Okay. Principle number two of textual criticism, choose the more difficult text. Principle number three, Choose the text that best explains the existence of all the others. So that's the question. Is the Masoretic text or the Septuagint the more difficult reading? The Septuagint is the more difficult text. Because again, that verb is typically not used for piercing hands and feet. The Masoretic text is definitely the easier text because the lack of a verb can be explained by a poetic expression for the suddenness of the attack. And there are lions in verses 14 and 22. So the longer reading of the verb uses an aleph for the aval. I know I'm getting technical here. But a scribe saw the word ka'aru, kaf aleph resh vav, which makes little, it doesn't make any sense. There's no actual word in Hebrew. It was ka'aru. It's not a Hebrew word. And assumed that the, that the final vav was a yud. And that word must be like a lion, ka'ari. Kaf, Aleph, Resh, Yud. Yet the word for lion used up earlier in verse 14 and later in verse 22 is a different word for lion. That's Aryeh, Aryeh, with a hay at the end of the word. So what are we to do? We have to look carefully at the text. We know that this is a lament psalm as well as a prophetic psalm. And you might recall from the first message in the series that lament psalms have an order to them. Remember that? There's a turning, there's a talking to God, followed by complaints, followed by petitions, and then trust. And as I open the message, we see the parallelism in Psalm 22 in terms of its complaints and its petitions. 
We saw the complaints in verses 2 and 12, the petitions in verse 20. We saw the complaint in verses 13 and 14 with its corresponding petition in verse 22. The above petitions are matching the complaints in those verses. Verse 17b, the petition, dog, doesn't match the complaint if it's translated lion, but does match if translated pierced as swords pierce. And so the original meaning must have been karu, pierced, and not kaori, like a lion. And so if you agree with the original meaning, we see the perfect metaphoric zoological symmetry, which does away with all the problems in the text. We see bulls, verse 13, lions, verse 14, dogs, verse 17, then dogs, verse 21, then lion, verse 22a, and then oxen, part of the bull family, in verse 22b. And so our non-believing Jewish brothers and sisters cannot say in good faith that Christians raped the text. There should be no blaming. There should be no accusing here. The error happened innocently before the first century CE by a scribe, one guy, who didn't recognize the karu spelled with the aleph, karu. So he thinks it's a lion, kari. Unfortunately, this guy's mistake innocently resulted in a lot of arguments moving forward over the last 2,000 years. April, if you come up. So what's the message of this psalm, my friends? Here's the message. Because Messiah suffered on the tree of sacrifice for our salvation, we've got to proclaim that salvation to everybody. Two applications tonight, and then we're going to close. Number one, we must put the tree of sacrifice at the center of our walk with the Lord. When we focus daily on the tree of sacrifice, our hearts then begin to be filled up with joy and thankfulness for God's priceless gift to us. Focusing on the tree of sacrifice helps us do something else, helps us to resist temptations as we remember that we were redeemed with nothing less than the Messiah's blood. Number two application moving forward, we must put God's heart for the lost as the bottom line in our walk with him. He wants all the ends of the earth to turn back to him and to worship him. We have his command to go. We have his promise that, quote, all the families of the nations will bow down before you. Verse 28. How can they worship him if they've never heard of him? How will they hear if we don't go? How will they hear if we are not sent? It's one of my favorite psalms. Strengthens our faith in the text, in the word of God. We serve a living God. Our lives are bet on truth. I'm going to ask Darcy to come up, Rebbits and Darcy, tonight. We're going to close with Hadala. And we gave you a long explanation last week. If you were not here, just take a look at our YouTube page, Tree of Life Live from San Diego, to get a background of Abdallah. We've got the cup of wine, the clay box filled with cinnamon, cloves, rosemary, and lavender. We have the Abdallah candle, and, you can, and we have the bread from last night, Erev Shabbat. And so behold, God is our salvation. Can we sing that again tonight?
God is my salvation. Oh, I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. For the Lord my God is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Lie, 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 lie. Hallelujah. Behold, God is my salvation. Hine el Yeshua ti. Eftach velo efchad. I will not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my strength, the source of my salvation. Ushaftimayim besoson mim aine ha Yeshua. Le adonai ha Yeshua. Al am chabir chatecha. With joy. Even tonight on Tisha B'Av, with joy shall we draw waters from the well of salvation, the wells of Yeshua. The Lord brings salvation. The Lord brings Yeshua, your blessing to your people. Adonai Tzvot Imanu. Miskav Lanu, Elohei Yaakov. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, he is our stronghold. You have saved, O Lord. You have answered us, O our King. When we called upon you, give us light, give us joy, give us gladness, give us honor, even as in the happiest days of Israel's past. We will therefore with joy abundant lift the cup of Yeshua to rejoice in your redeeming power and call out your name in praise. Hallelujah. Baruch Melech If we can pour the grape juice. Borei peri hagafen. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Who creates the fruit of the vine. Of course, we learned last week why we fill it to overflowing. Take a look back at that video if you want the explanation and you weren't here. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. 
And over the spices, we can open those and sniff those. We say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Vesamim. Amen. And as we light the candle tonight, as I gave an explanation regarding its multi-wicks last week, we say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Morei Haesh. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, creator of the lights of fire. Lord, we give thanks for the Sabbath day, which is now ended. Father, we're grateful for its many blessings, for peace, for joy, for the rest for our bodies. Hallelujah. Rest for our souls. Baruch Hashem. May something, Lord, of its meaning and message remain with us as we enter a new week, lifting all that we do to a higher plane of holiness, inspiring us to work with renewed hearts for the coming of the day when Elijah's spirit will herald our redemption from all sadness and from every bondage, when indeed Yeshua will reign on David's throne and the words of your prophet Isaiah will be fulfilled, for they shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Blessed is the Lord God, King of the universe, who separates the sacred from the profane, light from darkness, the seventh day of rest from the six days of labor, and us as your body of believers from the world of sin and corruption by Yeshua's redemptive work. Blessed is the Lord who separates the sacred from the profane. And so we extinguish the candle into the wine that was spilt from the cup onto the plate. Thus, the sad end to Shabbat. So God told Moses how to bless the children of Israel with these words. Receive them from the Lord tonight as we as we break. Yivarechecha Adonai Vayishmerecha Yo'er Adonai Panavilecha Vichunecha Yisha Adonai Panavilecha Vyasemolecha May the Lord bless you and keep you tonight. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you peace. In the name of Sar Shalom, the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua HaMashiach. And all of us agreed by saying amen. This is our loaf from last night. We say, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Well, Shavua Tov, everybody, a good week. We've got some amazing pretzels and toppings out there. 
hang out with Robert at Salt and Light, write some postcards, get some information, hang on in fellowship. We're, we're not having to be out of here. And we definitely, moving forward, are not going to have to be out of here as well. Amen. Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.